there's probably been about 250 to maybe 260,000 uh, more or less kids coming across the border already. Now I know they're kids because I was in charge of what they called the UAC database. It's a database that Health and Human Services has that has like the kids, has their picture, their age, and their sponsor location. So I was able to look and say, oh, man, like because later on I ran, I'm like, man, these are like babies. Some of them are babies. So out of 29,000, 3,400 came back to some sort of criminal history, whether that's reentry after deportation or it's up to sex offenses. I believe one of them was like a homicide. And they released all these. So I go to my supervisors. I'm like, well, release all these kids to criminals. What about all the other kids, not just this spreadsheet, but all these other kids that got released? Are we going to go and, you know, get these kids and bring them back into a safe haven? And it fell on deaf ears. And it kept falling on deaf ears. Welcome to Game of Crimes. When you were doing drug cases in San Diego, what was the priority for the for the ICE office then? It wasn't drugs, was it? No, money. Money and counterfeit. Yep. Gucci bags. Yep. Yeah. Oh, and cigarettes, too. Cigarettes. cigarettes. <laughs> we did a wire case in San Diego for months and months and months on cigarettes. And they never even end up, I don't even think they even got a conviction out of it. Because it was taxes. They someone wasn't paying the taxes. So we we got paid overtime to run surveillance on a cigarette smuggler. While all these tons and tons of uh, dopes going across the border, all the drug groups and everybody had to run a wire on a fucking cigarette uh, smuggler. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And you know, this guy ends up uh later on in life becomes like you know, like my boss becomes the director and this other guy becomes, gets all the attache jobs he wants overseas and the, the same type of people. And it's like, you know, the worker bees are just, boom. Mm-mm, hey, fodder. Go back to that for a second. One, once the once the dickhead uh, sent you the email and then he realized it was an oops, did he try and cover it up or did he just kind of like? No, no. He said, well, I hope you made the right decision. Like, I'm like, okay, dude. Like, thanks. Unbelievable. I mean, you got an experienced... Not only an experienced federal agent, but you've got a war veteran who just came yeah. back from a combat zone, and we can't take care of him. Oh, uh, and later on, so later on, I'm working. I, so I do the the uh, the DOD thing for a bit, the Army CID thing for about seven months, and then I found a 1811 job in Philly. Uh, before you gloss over that, can I just did it for seven months? Let's talk about that for a second. Did you make it down to Gitmo? Yeah, it's beautiful down there. I don't know if you okay, guys have been see, there. you're about to gloss all over this. Let's talk. Okay, <laughs> give us a couple ideas. See that this is this is the Listen, way we had one guy. You don't talk about Gitmo. What's the first rule of Gitmo? So you, you don't, don't talk, talk about, about Gitmo. Gitmo. All right, well, no, we won't talk about one thing one I, Okay, let's let's throw the FBI under the bus one more time. Right? <laughs> okay, and hey, you know what? I love a lot of people in the FBI. Well. Obviously, we all, we, we've all got friends. We've all got friends. All got again, friends. It's, about, okay, it's not the agents. It's usually the agency. It's the leadership. It's not the but agents. But when you go to Gitmo, and I, you know, I, I'll just say I went to Gitmo to follow up on some investigations and stuff, but Gitmo itself is not what you think. It's it's like the Key West. It's like it's, you know, rocky beaches. You don't have sandy beaches and stuff, but the water is beautiful. And I imagine the diving is great because when you get, you fly down there, in these little, um, you know, we had military private type chains, uh, flights, but the FBI shows up 
because you know, the FBI has to have their hand in everything, right? But the FBI shows up with all their dive gear, their snorkel gear and everything else. So I'm like, are you really here to do anything with the detainees at Guantanamo Bay? Are you here to dive and fish or whatever? Looking for lobster. Yeah. I'm like, come on, FBI. Hey, you know, and we, you know what? I don't know if they're FBI, but they sure as hell seem like they're FBI. The, so that job, were you associated with the Office of Military Commissions? Yeah. So after I retired DEA, I took a one-year contract job um, working over in Tyson's at a secret location. And, uh, and they brought us in to, me and another guy, retired agent, to review the cases on all those people mm-hmm. in Gitmo. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're working for a one star and I said, what, you know, what's your objective here? And he says, we're looking for any new nuggets that would help prosecutions. Yeah. So we got to look at some of those people have been in custody for 15 years. Yep. <laughs> we went back to the general. It's like, what do you think? Government efficiency. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And he was a super guy. I love the guy. I can't remember his name, but I, I have the utmost respect for that man. Well, I'll tell you the guy they need to keep in custody and never let out is Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Oh, he was one of them. Yep. Yeah, KSM, uh, so see, you're we'll smiling. Just, What's your KSM, KSM story? Did you did you have any contact? No, I don't with talk him? about. Uh, you know what? I'll I'll write Sidif here and there, but I'm not going to talk about Sidif. Yeah, it's uh, there's things that you're not allowed to talk about. You can okay, well, just between it. us, I promise we won't say anything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there I was. There yeah. I was. No shit. There I was, knee deep in grenade pins. And when so you're ended up, when I you're at the military me. court answering why you violated your security oath here. Yeah, so Piccolo. Well, Morgan you said he book. wouldn't tell anybody. Yeah, he said it. I'm like, and anything I put in a book was all open source. So it's like, you know. There you go. There you go. And it wasn't anything I created. I hate people that try to act spooky that are that aren't anything to do with spooky world. And like, oh yeah, I can't tell you about that. It was top secret. This is just basically, hey, you know what? You have to dig up case nuggets in there. So it wasn't anything exciting. I did have some decent training, which was really cool. Um, what kind of training? Passport, just interrogation training. But my passport photo was awesome because I was in, just got back from the war. So, I mean, I looked really good. You know, this is, you know, 190-pound Jason Piccolo compared to whatever I am now. So, I mean, hey, I got that out of it. That's classified, get, too. We can't talk about that. You didn't get inter- in uh, training and rendition, did you? No, Christ. this was, this was post, this was post, uh, enhanced interrogation. Mm, okay. Well, where, yeah, let's, where let's they had to start using the army field manual on, uh, interrogations. Oh, physically, God. physically right upside the head. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you guys. Okay. Let's, let's, let's close. Oh, that was, <laughs> that was seven, was seven months at 30 years. Come on. But, but were you down? How long were you down in Gitmo for that seven months? Just, just a trip. Okay. Yeah. Most of the time it was a bellwire. What was it like, though, coming in there for that first time? You know, you're flying in. Uh, did you- I loved it. Yeah. It's funny because my son's like, can we go to Cuba? And I'm like, well, first we're going to have to go to Mexico or Canada, then we can go to Cuba. <laughs> I've always wanted to go to Cuba, though, like Cuba, Cuba. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. Me too. Me too. Just because, you know, you see the old cars and the yeah. old. Yeah. You know, the old well, you know why they got the old cars? That's <laughs> because they can't import anything to fix I anything. I know, and they, it. I know Yeah. Anyway, so you did that time. So you did your seven months. Um, why it was a three-year contract? Why seven months? Well, I found well, I found a job in Philly, working for the Defense Logistics Agency, which eventually turns into the Office of Inspector General for uh, that, uh, doing employee investigations and trade security control investigations and stuff like that. But my goal was, you know, at the time, <laughs> was to get back into. So I get this job with DLA, 
And it's kind of like almost like a retirement gig. And that's kind of why I went, I go over to ICE later on. It's very uh, administrative focused. What year so is this, this approximately? This was 2007 to 2009. Okay. So I'm over there. I'm doing these investigations and I did hundreds of interviews. Holy crap. Most of employee stuff and follow up on uh, contracts and trade security stuff and user agreement type stuff. So I do, I'm doing all these things. And there's another job opening in this agency, right? So I I get a hold of the the ICE, this ICE group supervisor I know in, in Philly, and he wants to kind of semi-retire and, and come over and, and take over my job, basically, because he found out about it through there. So we're bullshitting. He goes, okay, I'm going to work this. We're going to get you, we're going to get you back, be an agent over here, blah, blah, blah. He reaches out to my group supervisor and I didn't put this in a book, but fuck him. Um, so he reaches out to my supervisor, my former, one of my former supervisors in San Diego, not the same, not the one that denied my request, but this guy had his hands in it too. Goes up to get a reference to make sure that I'm good to go. Well, that supervisor that I busted my ass for, for a long time, we called him fat blank because he was just a fat, just, God, I can't just, uh, to this day, it just drives me nuts. This supervisor goes, yeah, Piccolo volunteered to go to war because his wife got some bullshit job as an analyst with the FBI. And he's just trying to get out of coming back to San Diego. And it basically, you know, blocked me from getting that job in Philly and gave me like a, a shitty uh, reference and burned my name. So I, when I later on, my buddies, like, um, I had a lot of good buddies that ended up starting to get into headquarters and start moving up in the ranks. And I took the group soup test. You know, when I got back from the war, that's the other thing. I took a group soup test so I'd be eligible to become a supervisor. So they could have transferred me to D.C. So even if I didn't, they didn't want to send me to Philly, they could have sent me to D.C. because I passed the group soup test. Because, you know. That would have been a, what, a GS-13? No, that would have been a 14. 14? Yeah, and this was back in 07. So I could have been a 14 at, at headquarters too. And they didn't take that into consideration. So I end up, um, I get a job later on. My buddy's like, hey, look, I got a buddy. He's a, he's a manager over in ICE uh, ERO, Enforcement Removal Operations. You want to go over there and be a deportation officer? I'm like, yeah, fuck it. Gets me back into Homeland Security, but gets me back into doing something that's... Get you back no, into eighteen eleven, right? Badge gun. No, carrying. this is eighteen oh one. Eighteen oh one. Oh, okay. Yeah. What so is, it's what's the long, difference? Uh, one is like eighteen oh one is like all encompassing. It's still law enforcement. Some of them are law enforcement. Some of them are not. And it's just um, it gets you it gets you back into the like the real law enforcement world, supposedly. So I go over there and I become a deportation officer in Philly. Um, and at the time I was working a docket, meaning, you know, helping, trying to figure out how to deport people, how to, reviewing cases and everything. I do that for a while. I get onto the squad that does the um, uh, ankle bracelets. So I learn how to do all the ankle bracelet stuff, uh, the GPS monitoring of the criminal aliens. And then I become a supervisor in Delaware uh, for fugitive operations. Um, so I, I become a few, uh, fugitive operations supervisor. And at the same time, I take this gig as with the executive leadership program. Mm -hmm. And that gets me back into the world of drugs. Cause for my leadership TDY, I do 90 days in Camden Haida. <laughs> so I go, I go to work with one of my really good buddies who's at the time an ice special agent. And we work, uh, we work drugs in Camden. 
for 90 days doing jump outs and shit. Holy crap. I just heard a little bit of a hint of a Jersey accent when you said Camden. So did you have a good Jersey accent when you left Jersey? Oh, you know what? I forgot to tell the story about being in Minnesota. So I go to, (laughs) when I'm in college in Minnesota, let's backtrack here in 15 years, whatever, five years. I get to Minnesota and I go to get a glass of water. Water? (laughs) Water. And I, to this day, I cannot say water. So the lady's like, what? (laughs) Water? I'm like, water. And she's like, we don't have any of that. (laughs) <laughs> and, or a soda, they'd be like pop. Everything's pop there. So yeah, the Jersey. I, when I get around my brother, I have another brother, uh, Brian, Brian Piccolo. Whenever we, <laughs> whenever I get around him, it's like even our text messages are like boom, bro. And we start talking Jersey all day long, and I'm like, so what exit did your life off of? Uh, exit twelve. Exit twelve. Of Eighty. Mm, there you but go. But I was born in Booton, New Jersey, which is over at, uh, it's down by Jersey City a little bit. And then my brothers used to box in uh, Patterson, New Jersey at the Lou Costello gym. Wow. So Lou Costello from Abbott Costello has a yeah. gym in Patterson. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Cool. So now you're back in Camden. So tell us, tell our listeners that, don't, that are not familiar with Camden, New Jersey, just how safe a place that is. Camden is the, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful area. Was it the murder capital of the U.S. at one time? I thought it that was, was Newark. Mur- uh, think- uh, Newark was the automotive um the car theft capital of the country at one time. Camden's a tough place. Camden man. was rough. Can you imagine? And this is right before they dissolved the police department too. <laughs> and man, there was like my buddy did a a, a case coming in from um, uh, PR, Puerto Rico, uh, cargo case, 100 keys of Coke. I mean, so much Coke coming in. <laughs> I mean, like the, the ports of entry out there too. I mean... Oh man, what a shithole. No, hey, Camden's could has it does have some beautiful areas for like a block. Yeah. <laughs> the the uh, the uh hey, the, don't send us hate mail, folks. We're not the ones saying it. Listen, Camden is beautiful now. No, there really is. I mean Rutgers has a Camden campus. They have the uh the ships there. The uh the aquarium's beautiful. Yeah, I mean there's beautiful places. Did you work with uh, DEA there in Camden? Yeah. Yeah. It was part of the DEA thing. It was more DEA than it was like, you know, in San Diego, it's mostly all customs back then. Yeah. But DEA, Haida and and Camden was all DEA. Do you know a guy named Sam Trotman? I don't know. He was DEA New York. And then I think he went down to Camden. He's he's the agent that ended up uh, prosecuting Lakika, who was one of Escobar Sicarios that was captured in the United States. Oh. Nice. He's the guy that put the bomb. He orchestrated the bomb on the Avianca flight that killed 110 people. Holy shit. Yeah, he's a piece of crap. Yeah, yeah. So that leadership detail <clears throat> was 2011. So at the time when I got done with that, you know, and this is supposed to set you up to go into headquarters and management. So after that, I got an 18-month TDY to headquarters under this executive management program they had at the time. So I ended up going to ICE headquarters and working in operations. Man, that's like going out of the frying pan into the fire, isn't it? Yeah. And this was, you know, I don't, I didn't put this in a book, but I think this might be. We have a whole other book here of stuff you didn't put in the book. We're going to have a third book. He left it wide open at the end for the next, the next edition. You know what? I am writing another book, but it has nothing to do with Homeland Security. Oh, It's going to be called Pivot. 
transitioning life's roadblocks and like detours or something like that. And I'm going to be interviewing a bunch of people and you guys will probably be in it because I'll probably ask you to be in it. And it's going to be about how people deal with transition and different points in that oh shit factor. Like almost like me, like when you blow the whistle or the, the, uh, the sack of San Diego tells you to don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. Yeah. Lovely parting words. So I ended up in ICE headquarters, right? And this is operations detail. Uh, it's supposed to be 18 months, and then you have the option of staying. So as I'm there, uh, God, I'm trying to remember the years now. Um, I got a bigger question. At this point in time, how long have you been married for, and how much time have you actually seen your wife during this time? <laughs> and, are you still, and are you still married? <laughs> Still married. Still married. That's why. That's <laughs> the secret to still marriage. getting to know each other. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Because I think about like when I was in the army, I went to NTC twice. She went to Bosnia. She was one of the first people to go to Bosnia because she was a Serb linguist. I think she was like one of the first females to disarm like a uh, some dude was walking around with an AK and she just walked up and she's like, oh, you can't have that. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> so she went to Turbo like Serbo course. <clears throat> so, yeah, this is a long time. Ah, uh, man. That's a, that's a whole other book right there. See, <laughs> no, we, we've got three books out of you now. <laughs> oh, man. So when I'm at ICE headquarters, we'll gloss over the whole, you know, the years away. Holy shit. So when I start thinking about it, I'm like, man. It's 2013, I think, is what I'm looking at in your book here. So yeah, right? so they, um, uh, 2013 or 2014 is when they had this big thing about too many people were in custody. So ICE uh, gets a notification from the president or someone that says, we need to get rid of, we need to flush these jails out and get rid of people that we can't remove. So they got rid of, they called us in on a weekend <clears throat> and they said, hey, you know what? Um, we need to go through all these, get all the, um, the ICE officers, 26 offices, and start getting rid of criminal. <laughs> they. They got rid of, uh, they released criminals, all sorts of hundreds of people. And then they go back and they go, oh, we released all these criminals out there. And I was like, what are we doing? Why are we here on a weekend? And why are we uh, releasing all these people from the jails? And uh, I think it started chapping people's ass that I was Asking very outspoken questions. about. Yeah. How many people are we talking about, you think, over that weekend? How many, how many were released? Uh, you know what? I'm not going to throw out any figures. I need to go back and look. But it was a lot, and there was a lot of criminals in there too, because they were basically trying to. Uh, we had, I think, at the time there was a mandate of you can only have forty-two thousand people in custody at one time, and it was over that, so they started just getting rid of them. So <clears throat> that happens later on. I um I become an acting unit chief, so I'm in I'm the acting unit chief off of both east and west. So I'm the acting GS-15 over 26 field offices. I'm becoming the acting chief of staff. Um, later on, I get assigned to this human smuggling cell, right? So it's part of the White House Security Council's human smuggling cell. And what the goal of this cell was is to stop... Let me backtrack. 2012, 2013, thousands of thousands of unaccompanied children started to flow across the border. And what I mean about unaccompanied alien children, UAC, is what they call them. And I think it's unaccompanied migrant children because they don't use the alien word. But unaccompanied alien children were coming across the border. And what happened was they would either be paired up with an adult and the adult would hand them off to um, uh, Customs and Border Protection or Border Patrol. 
And then when they get into Customs and Border Protection or Border Patrol's custody, they get released over to ICE, they get processed. And there was like, uh, at the time, like 60 to 80,000 kids a year. So our goal the smuggling cell was to go after the smuggling organizations and to find out, you know, who the main leaders are and, and go after them. And that was our goal. We were at the, the strategic level. And we were supposed to provide guidance to the field. Hey, quick question. At that time, at that point in time, who was running these smuggling operations and how much was it per person being smuggled, if you remember? It was five to $8,000 per person. And who's running is obviously, it just depends on what region of the country it is, but you know, it's going to be the cartel is going to be running it. It's a $150 billion business. That's what I'm saying. Even back then, yeah. the cartels were knee deep in this stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because think about it this way, you know, and I try to explain to people about drugs. Drugs is, you know, you're, you're moving a product and that product has so many working pieces and it's lucrative, but when you're moving a body, you're getting them across the border and you're getting paid that five grand, five days, right? Or whatever depending on what country they're coming from too. It's, it's a lucrative business. It's a, it's a flow that keeps going. How hard is it to prove smuggling a person than it is to prove when you have drugs in your hands? You know, so many people, you could smuggle people all day long. And at one time, um, in order to get adults across the border, it, so if you, the border is such a, the laws, the rules change with administrations, but at the one time, if you're an adult, and you come across with a border, you have the floor's amendment, I believe it is. So you can't stay in custody. A kid can't be in custody for more than 21 days. So if you're coming across the border with a kid, you're not going to stay in custody. They're gonna, you're going to have to get released with the kid. So they would pair up adults with children, and they would use legit passports and pair them up with a kid with a legit passport, saying that they're a parent. And we'll get into that a little later, too. So I'm part of this human smuggling cell and thousands of kids are coming across the border. Hey, and real I'll quick ex- question though about the pa- – when you say <clears throat> pair them up with a legit passport, were they getting fraudulent passports or were they using passports belonging to somebody else and they kind of They were getting like- fraudulent legit passports. Okay. And like um, it depends on like – you know, so if you you can get uh, legit passports through, you know, the passport. A lot of the ones coming in through like um, uh, let's say outside of the – the children, the, the South American, you know, Latin American children. Outside of that, you would get a lot of um, special interest alien countries. You know, people coming from Somalia or Africa or anything else would fly in using legit passports. They would fly into Brazil. And from Brazil, they would just take the same uh, smuggling corridors as everybody else. So, I mean, coming in with legit passports and then they just reuse them. Yeah. Okay. So I'll give the process of how the, how the kids factor into this. So you have an unaccompanied child and these are anywhere from babies on up to like, you know, 17 year old. So, I mean, you have legit babies coming in and I'll tell you how I know that in a minute. Kids come into the border. Um, they get handed over to either at the port of entry, it's going to be a customs and border protection officer, or if it's outside of that, it'll be border patrol. Border patrol processes them, hands them to ICE. ICE transports them to Health and Human Services Office of Refugee Resettlement, who then hands them over to a contracted facility. Now, these contracted facilities are all over the country. That's why you're seeing, you're reading in the news about kids flying on flights and going here, there, and everywhere. 
these contractor facilities are supposed to go by certain mandates. They're supposed to determine whether or not, <clears throat> and this was all in policy. They're supposed to do criminal history checks on um, people who are going to come in and sponsor these children. Think of it almost as like uh, the foster care system. They're going to release these kids out to someone who's going to be a sponsor or I like quote unquote, a foster type parent. Now, do they, these sponsors, do they get paid by the government to take no. care of these kids? Uh-uh. Okay. So that's the other thing. It's a little bit different than the foster care system. But while the kid goes through the immigration process, they're supposed to have a sponsor, someone that's going to bring them to their, their court hearings and et cetera. They're supposed to be vetted, the sponsors. They're supposed to have their fingerprints taken. They're supposed to be, you know, interviewed. They're supposed, they're supposed to put them with a familial relation, but they're not. And I'm hearing a lot of supposed, so it sounds like there's going to be some flaws in this process, right? There's definitely going to be some flaws in this process, and that's one thing I found out later on. So I'm, I'm about midway point into this rotation out to this human smuggling cell, and one of my buddies forwards me a spreadsheet, and this is August 4th. August 3rd or 4th is when I got this spreadsheet, and the spreadsheet's dated July, so it's already been a month. That was like July... I think it was July 3rd or 5th. I can't remember the, the date of the spreadsheet, but that's not really relevant. But the spreadsheets taken from DHS took all the names of the sponsors and their addresses and their biographics, and they ran them for criminal history. And out of 29,000 of those sponsors, that's just one spreadsheet. Now, think about this. This is 2015. It's already been years. There's probably been about 250 to maybe 260,000 uh, more or less kids coming across the border already. <clears throat> now I know they're kids because I was in charge of what they called the UAC database. It's a database that Health and Human Services has that has like the kids, has their picture, their age, and their sponsor location. So I was able to look and say, oh man, like because later on I ran, I'm like, man, these are like babies. Some of them are babies. So out of 29,000, 3,400 came back to some sort of criminal history, whether that's reentry after deportation or it's up to sex offenses. I believe one of them was like a homicide. And they released all these. So I go to my supervisors. I'm like, well, release all these kids to criminals. What about all the other kids, not just this spreadsheet, but all these other kids that got released? Are we going to go and, you know, get these kids and bring them back into a safe haven? And it fell on deaf ears. And it kept falling on deaf ears. Hey, real quick, your spread, your one spreadsheet had 29,000. How many total sponsors are there? That's what I mean. Like, if you think about it this time, this is 2015, and the data is up there. So you can imagine, if you go to the cbp.gov website, you could pull up the data for all the children, UACs that have come across. But at the time you were talking about, 29,000 was the universe of sponsors that you were dealing with at the time, right? No, this was just a snapshot. So what they did was they took a sampling of 29,000 and they ran 30. They ran and that's it what I'm 30, saying. At that time, you took a – so how big, was the, how big was the entire population? They probably could have taken – well, I was thinking over 200,000. No shit. Yeah, because think about it. If they took a sampling of all of them, and not even a sampling, if they ran all of the ones at that time, you know, going back to when the UAC started coming across, it had to have been over 200,000. Because I think, the, man, the last time I looked at it was like, I thought it was over 200,000. I have to look. Wow. Down. And so but out now, of the 29,000 that you sampled, 400 had criminal histories. No, 3,400. 3,400. Yeah, My and I didn't God. do the sampling. So that's, that's the thing. Is that's, I didn't over, do... that's 12, 13%. 
But the funny thing is I didn't do the sampling. This was DHS, Maine DHS did the sampling with ICE and everybody else. So if my calls to action fell on deaf ears. So that's when I legally, I always say this, legally blew the whistle. I went home and I actually... Well, let's, before you, let's, let's lay a little bit more of the groundwork. So let's talk about that. When you said you had, you, you made your concerns known, let's talk about a time period. How long had you been trying to get their attention to say, we've got problems here? And in other words, we don't want people to think that you woke up one day, you sent one email, you go, well, fuck you, nobody answered me, so I'm going to become a whistleblower. Let, no, let's, this was, let's, this let's was in, some groundwork this was here. in, yeah, this was in person. And then it was also, uh, I didn't give him a lot of time. It was days. And then I blew the whistle, you know, cause I mean, I went to my, super, listen, my supervisor was in charge of the whole cell. He blew it off. His, his supervisors blew it off there. And at this time, the email chain that already knew about this information had everybody a ton of senior people that were involved with it. And that's why I always say, like, if you see some of these pundits on TV that were on, I, I know for sure that they were on this list. They knew about all this stuff. So everybody and their brother knew about it. So that's why I was like, you know what? I, these kids are out there with the criminals. I gave them a sufficient amount of time. I told them my concerns. They said they weren't going to do anything about it. And I took action. Because I said at the time, I'm like, look, you know, I've, I've, work dynamic operations. I know it's the government. I've done, I did fugitive operation. I was a fugitive operations supervisor where we had to go out and we had to go after fugitives. We do nationwide operations. I knew we could do the same type of thing, go up, find out where these kids are and get remanded back in the safe haven. But let's talk about that for a second too, because we're not talking about like a, a fraud or something. And I don't want to say it's just money, but it's just money on the one hand. Now, on the other hand, we're talking about the lives of kids and stuff. And so the, what I'm trying to do exactly. is really kind of paint this. This isn't just like if you had just taken the standard route and kept trying to bring it up to the leadership and stuff, you think you ever would have been successful getting their attention? Never. This is, this is 2015. This is before an election year. Can you imagine it came out in the public that we were all these thousands of kids coming across the border were getting released at people that could be criminals that are criminals that could be sex offenders, they could be murderers, they could be anything. And then later on, when I actually worked with uh, Senator Grassley's office, they found out that kids were not only ending up with sex traffickers, but labor, labor trafficking. They were putting these kids on farms. So it's not just the sex and everything else. It's like, right. For, I mean, it's, we're forced, it's slavery. Labor. Yeah, it is. Talk about this, though, before you decided to escalate and you say uh, be, be, officially become a whistleblower. What's the process for that? So t walk us through your thinking. What kind of things were going through your head to say, you know, how do you how did you weigh things versus what's going to happen to me versus what's happening to these kids versus the process? Kind of walk us through how you approached it, uh, you know, philosophically. Well, for one thing, I didn't want to be a leaker. I wasn't like going to do a Snowden type thing or, or Manning. I knew if I had to do something, I needed to bring it up to the right people. But the big thing at the time is my kids were six and eight. And I saw these pictures of these little kids and I'm thinking to myself, Mike, I've always been kind of, you know, a dad before, you know, I'm not going to go out and like, even when I was doing fugitive stuff, I wanted to focus on criminals. I wanted to focus on the, on the real bad element rather than just the mom and pop type people out there. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, when I went home, I was like, man, I'm like, can you imagine my little kids being in some strange place, getting abused 
And I don't care where they're from. They're still little kids. It's not their fault. And I always tell people, I'm like, yes, there were MS-13 people coming across posing as kids, but the majority of them are like little kids. They're kids. Well, it was easy to identify the MS-13 shitheads because they had tattoos, or did most of them have tattoos on their face? Yeah. Uh, it's not just the face. It's like, it's all the other things too. And like, and that's one of, and that's why I stopped doing political stuff later on. Not that I ever really did political things. I would just stick to, stick to the things that I know. So when I, when I did that, I, I went home and I, I started doing my research. I'm like, okay, so if I'm going to blow the whistle, how do I do it? And how do I do it legally? Uh, so I found out the office of special counsel, the U S office of special counsel is supposed to look into other agencies. Now I also did report this to the, DHS Office of Inspector General as well. And At they the same didn't do time anything. or first? At the same time, yeah. So the U.S. Office of Special Counsel, is that basically the OIG for the other OIGs or the other no, agencies? It's, the Special Counsel is supposed to be the ones that whistleblowers go to. Okay. You know, I think FBI and the, the intelligence agencies, I don't know how they do it, but for regular federal government, you're supposed to go to the Office of Special Counsel. And I went to them and they they ran with it. But they started getting pushback. <clears throat> they, Health and Human Services came back and said, no, we did a sampling of the 29,000 sponsors. You know how big their sampling was? Just Five guess. people? <clears throat> I read 20, the book. Yeah, 25. Out of 29,000. 25. And you know yeah. what? You don't even have to have a degree in statistics to know from a statistical standpoint. Oh, that's not God. a valid sample. So check this out. So... I'm going back for, and they keep going. They're like, and HHS is the one who provided this spreadsheet to, to DHS in order to do the data. But because my spreadsheet wasn't lined up exactly like theirs, same information, everything exactly the same. I didn't alter any information, but because the spreadsheet didn't look exactly like theirs, like maybe a line was off, they kept trying to say that it was false. And I'm like, but this is your data. Your data is right there. It's not like I did anything with it. I'm like, this is your data. And the funny thing is, if you go to the OSC website, you could put, you could find all my, and this is at the time I was anonymous because I was allowed to provide responses through my office of special counsel lawyer <clears throat> saying, hey, you know what? Me refuting, they're, they're coming back because they didn't want to admit it. So after a while, after four months, I was like, you know what? They're still not doing anything. So this is October. The spreadsheet's July, and they're still not doing anything about this. And during this time, uh, I know this gets into part of what you did in the book too, but the whole process, but during this time, somebody's got to be trying to figure out who the hell you are, right? We've got exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's their focus now. Yeah, their focus isn't on a day. They're trying to figure out who they're the hell you are. Yeah, they're not trying to solve the problem. They're just trying to figure out who's blowing the whistle. Yeah. So I end up... Uh, uh, you know, it's October and I'm like, this is getting to be bullshit. I'm like, I go to my OSC lawyer and I'm like, Hey, um, let's just, let me do an anonymous brief with these guys. And we'll, I'll do a call, I'll call in and I'll explain how this is all going on. But I tell them like, look, if we do this, it has to be anonymous. So as we're on the phone, um, I, I go out to the parking lot from you know, it's like right after work that day, I go out to the parking lot. I'm in the, the parking lot there and I go, I'm on the phone with a bunch of people and I'm like, okay, well, first off, before I do anything, I really want, I want a summary of everybody on this call. And then I also want their names and their emails. Cause I'm like, I'm not going to be talking about this to just anonymous people. So I'm like, you know, that's the thing. So <clears throat> they're going back for the, almost like a, they're interrogating me. 
And I'm like, this is how, I'm like, this is your data. It turns out that everybody, there was a bunch of people from the Office of Inspector General from HHS, OIG on there, lawyers, obviously. Lawyers always got to be involved. But they kept trying to ask me, like, how do you know this data? Where'd you get this data? How do you know this? I'm like, look, I'm a cert. How do you know it's it's not fraudulent? I'm like, look, I'm a CFE, certified fraud examiner. That was mistake number one. And I said, the other thing is, I said, I'm associated. uh, I know about the human smuggling, so I'm associated with it. Well, my dumbass, you know, hindsight is I'm the only CFE on the 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 human smuggling cell. So literally, then this was a Thursday. I think there was a holiday or something. Something we were off. The next business day, I reported back to the HSC. My supervisor from headquarters that I'm on detail from calls me up and says, "Hey, you you know your term your detail to the HSC is terminated." So they terminated my detail the next business day I showed up to work after I did this debrief. Doesn't that qualify as retaliation? It does, I thought. So I ended up going to uh, Senator Grassley's office, and I also followed an OSC complaint. Uh, Senator Charles Grassley is like the, the biggest whistleblower advocate out there. So I go with him, and we end, he ends up going after ICE and HHS and calls them on a carpet and makes them... Uh, explain to what's going on with these. And if you Google um, Grassley and Unaccompanied Children, you'll see there'll be um, a lot of stuff in there about me uh, blowing the whistle. And not me in general, just as a whistleblower came forward and he found out about the, he did further research and found out about the kids getting sent into the labor trafficking. But it wasn't just the UAC things that I told him about. Grassley wanted to know what was going on at the border about the special interest alien countries and how the FBI and the agency and everybody else wasn't working together. And let's set some groundwork or lay, lay some groundwork for that, too. When you say special interest, so what does that um, mean? That means like countries that may have ties to terrorism. And we're talking about like, uh, you know, like Somalia, like, yeah, Sudan, like Somalia and everything. Places and, like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I always tell people about when it comes to to immigration and aliens and whether or not they're coming over here for nefarious reasons or not. If somebody has never been encountered by the intelligence community or law enforcement, you can vet them all day long. And you won't get shit. You won't get shit. You don't have resources to go down there and interrogate everybody coming across the border. You don't. And and I want to make a point. We're we're recording this, obviously, before it comes out. But in today's news, the, the reason I'm making a point here in today's news, um, they just stopped a plot at UK Heathrow where uranium was coming into the country, being sent to Iranians in the UK. And it reminds me of the movie, Sean Bean was in it, but to your point, they called it clean skin. You bring people in that have no history, no contact, and they're able to fly under the radar and be operational right under our noses. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you too. So, you know, your term, your, your detail is terminated. Um, and so you went back to where? I went back to ICE headquarters. And that's what's funny because they put me, my cubicle was smack dab in the middle of, <laughs> you know, I had other um, other officers that were like, you know, junior to me that had like regular offices. They put me smack dab in the middle of like everywhere so everybody could see me. And I remember my, I'd come back and my cubicle be all jacked up. Like you could tell people were looking around it. My Outlook files would be all corrupted. Like they were, they were after me and I was lucky enough to find another job 
that got me out of there, but it still took me until February to get out of there. Well, didn't they, didn't they attack? Didn't you have an attack on your email account? Yeah. I got a, um, so my personal email one day got flooded with like thousands, I think like 10,000 spam emails, you know, and I, I can, you know, and I'm, how childish this time. I think I see G rides up the road, you know, there's people walking. I live near a trail. People are walking on a trail that don't have like trail walk and stuff. I mean, it was getting like really out of hand <clears throat> and I don't like to be like that paranoid, but I was paranoid at this time. And it was just like, I'm, and here I am thinking, I'm like, this time I got what, 15 years in with just the fed, 15, 16 years in with just the fed. And then you put the military in there and I'm like, it's a long fucking time to be, well, you know what pisses me off more than anything else is here's somebody who served their country, served their nation, mm-hmm. served, you know, in a variety of positions. And yet we got to be, we've got to be so childish that we have to screw with your email accounts, jack up your, I mean, it's like, seriously, people, we're trying to stop terrorists. We're trying to ensure national security, trying to stop, you know, think about just the amount of fentanyl coming in, but not just across the ports, but between the ports. And the human smuggling that's going on. We got all of this stuff going on, and yet you guys got time to fuck around and do this shit? Are you kidding me? Yeah, and I, I you know, I went to OIG with it. I went here, and I, I worked at Grassley's office. But, you know, I do want to backtrack to my brother and stuff and dealing with that warden. And that was the first, when I dealt with the warden my brother dying, that was the first time I actually looked at law enforcement a little bit different than I always have. The glaze came off. You know, that that thinking that, things are supposed to be, there's good and bad. And that in, when you're on the good side, that everybody's on the good side. And then later on when this happened, I'm like, yeah, I thought back to my brother and I thought back to that warden. I thought about back to him dying and why nobody took care of him. And I was like, <clears throat> and how people look at it is like, you know, there is a gray. There are people that are kind of moving to more towards the bad guy that could be working for the government. It's scary. Yeah, they're one paycheck away mm-hmm. from being that person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about careers, you know? Well, yeah, that, and that's what, that's, and that's, those people are the ones that become more career focused and advancing themselves at the cost of everybody else. They think that's leadership. That's got nothing to do with leadership. What's that's very not even Machiavellian management. is all it is, is that you're backstabbing everybody else to get yourself ahead. It's like the guys, the yeah. 90 day wonders that come over in theater so they can get their, you know, combat um, uh, patches and all that other stuff. And then they go back. I, uh, I have to laugh because, you know, I'll talk about it now because I'm retiring this month or next month, but <laughs> I get a job with the Environmental Protection Agency as an associate, uh, associate, uh, special agent in charge on ASAC, not an assistant special agent in charge. This is because it's a headquarters based, but they brought me over to be the assistant director of operations. Cause and, I, and what year was this? This was 2016. And so you basically kind of terminated your time with ice, right? Yeah. So I went over and I got my 1811 back with, uh, with EPA CID and I got, I get more, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go too much into EPA. But let's just say they brought me over for a certain position. But I think when all of this came out that I was a whistleblower, that I will retire as a GS-14. I won't. My career was over with after I blew the whistle. So let's fast forward through a lot of the EPA stuff. But I just came off of a president's management detail. And guess where I was assigned to? I know. (laughs) Department of Homeland Security 
Office of Policy. So I have a I had a really good boss, my last boss with uh with EPA. <clears throat> and I was able to he got me onto this uh this president's management rotation, which is a big deal. I mean, I've always wanted to get on one of these things. Some I go over to work for a DHS policy. So here I am reporting back to DHS. But as and, an EPA employee. As an EPA employee. And they can't working, do shit to you. I mean, they can kind of mess with you, but they can't well, do shit to you, yeah, right? That's because a, you're that's, the, a, that's a story for another day. But the funny thing is here I am working at headquarters for DHS at the highest levels. I'm putting together briefs in, uh, with the White House, you know, conference calls, top secret conference calls with the White House. I'm, I'm putting together briefs for this, the DHS secretary, and I'm thinking to myself, hmm. I guess he never Googled me. <laughs> I mean, you can kind of tell about, a, a, you could tell at one point through this detail, and I'm not going to get too much into it yet because I'm still here in the government, uh, but you could tell somewhere through this detail that they must have Googled me. I'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Well, let's do this. Why don't you tell us what it is, and we will put this podcast out after you retire. No, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it at that. Come on, let's let's work out a deal. You help me, I help you. That'll you know, the, that'll be the follow up. Yeah. We'll and you know what? That's what we'll do. We'll schedule a follow up. But but before we before we leave this too much, but tell us about your experience then versus what we're seeing now with everything that's going on at the border. Oh God, I got it. I, you know what? I, I should not glaze over this at all. Grassley's office was amazing. So 2000, 2016 Grassley calls them on a carpet. This stuff starts going public. They start vetting the sponsors. They pass it that they're going to start doing fingerprints. Uh, later on, they start doing DNA with these adults. This is all in our different administration, if you know what I mean. I'm not going to get political about this, but last March, so something positive came out of my whistleblowing. They started vetting sponsors. They started doing DNA. Last March, because there's so many people coming across the border and so many kids, they stopped vetting the sponsors again. So now there's no more more vetting the sponsors. I would love for someone to listen to this podcast and go, what? Because it kind of flew under the radar that they're not vetting him anymore. Now, maybe they have since March. I don't think so. But but one of the reasons they stopped is just because, like anything else, they're getting overwhelmed at the border. The number of people are coming across. I mean, they are re—we we found this out from talking to some other folks. They are redirecting people from enforcement operations to admin operations just to do processing. And so we've got fewer people. We don't need 87,000 IRS agents. What we need is 87,000, you know, Border Patrol, yeah. you know, or and and ICE people. Okay, listen to this. Special agent, proactive working drugs. Let's talk about money laundering. Let's talk about child exploitation. Let's talk about child pornography. Let's talk about human smuggling, human trafficking. Let's talk about actual investigations. Now you're taking all of these Homeland Security investigations, special agents, and you're putting them on a border to transport people, to process, to do stuff that you're not working cases. They're taking everybody from everywhere and putting them on a border, babysitting bodies, um, not working investigations, you know? So you're going to hire 87,000 IRS people or whatever. The thing is, you can, it'd be great to hire 87,000 border patrol agents, but where are you going to find 87,000 people that do those jobs? You know, you're not going to find people that do any of these jobs. I mean, HSI just had a job announcement the other day 
how many people are going to make it through the system? How many people are going to pass a polygraph? How many people are going to be able to pass a PC test? The drug test. The drug test. Every test. I mean... Are you familiar with Clauripivin? No. Clauripivin was a strategy created uh, back in the 60s. couple sociologists. I just pulled it up. I want to read this to you. L listen to this definition of what their strategy was and tell me if this doesn't sound like it. The two stated that many Americans who were eligible for welfare were not receiving benefits and that a welfare enrollment drive would strain local budgets, precipitating a crisis at the state and local levels. That would be a wake-up call for the federal government. Uh and particularly, it says here, the Democratic Party, there would also be side consequences. But basically what it did is you create such a crisis that everything blows up. And I mean, that's, this is exactly what it is. I mean, this, I mean, when we talk about resources being strained, can you imagine these cities all along the border, California, Arizona, you know, Texas and stuff? I feel so sorry for these city and local governments that are trying to deal with and guys, I'm not getting political here. I mean, but what I'm saying is, but when you ship 25 or 50 to New York and they start whining or Chicago, it's like are 25 or 50. These towns in Texas would be glad if it was only 25 or 50 coming in. Look at El Paso today. I mean, today, right now. Literally. Yeah. Well, Millions. It, yeah. Look at it because they cleaned it up um, just for the presidential visit. And I know people are going to say you're getting political. No, that, you know, if you can clean it up for that, why can't you clean it up for other things? Why did it take a presidential visit to clean up the area? Where's humanity? You know, not to, not to get the holier-than-thou attitude, but the vast majority of men and women that go into these type of jobs, law enforcement particularly, is to help others. You know, how in the hell are we? It, it's, you know, we've, we've had these uh, discussions on other shows and especially on our Patreon channel about immigration and what our thoughts are on the rule of law. I'm a big proponent of the rule of law. Go through the normal process. Are there uh, exceptions to every rule? Of course there are. But not like it's coming across now. That's like people just want the border wide open and come and go as they please. And that's not what we do here in the United States. That's not what we should be well, doing. My, in my viewpoint on immigration law, it's very simple. Nothing is going to get passed right now the way it is. Nothing. So in order to pass it, find the areas within that huge billion-page document, piecemeal it. Say okay, what are, what can we what can we fix today that both parties can do it? Yeah, because they want an all or nothing thing, and it's like it's not an you all can. or nothing thing. You, you got to start. Right. You got to start somewhere. You got to start gotta small. Piecemeal this yeah. thing. You know, listen, we need we need worker visas. Sure. Let's say this: you come over here for two three years, you get a a, a worker visa. To, you could work at a field or a farm or somewhere like that, but then you have to go back and you have to get vetted. You know, run your criminal history check, you know, whatever. DNA, in case you don't come up. Because we know not everybody's coming across that hasn't been, that, you know, didn't offend over that three years. So, you know, you have to stay legal. You have to go back. You have to apply and you have to come back. So, well, and Jason, something. when they started doing what they called the server in the sky over in Iraq during your time there in Tikrit, it was the one famous case called the dirt farmer from Tikrit. Army stopped this guy, ran his fingerprints through the FBI database. They had access to it. Guy had 13 fucking felony arrests in the United States, and he's over in Iraq. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if people only knew what was coming across the border, and not they only don't. what, but who, they don't. Hey, let, let me ask you this question while we're here right now. Let's assume that you were the HMFIC, which uh, for those you folks who are wondering what the acronym is, that's the head motherfucker in charge. Let's say that you could you could institute any law, policy, rule. Uh, let's say not law because that's Congress, but policy rule. What would you do different? 
give, give us like a two or three things. What would you do different today that you, you believe, you know, from your experience would make an impact, um, on solving, at least stopping the flow or preventing a lot of this exploitation? Public relations. You need to stop the flow. Listen, right now, our PR machine is saying as long as you get across that border and you get a foothold here, you're going to get some sort of immigrant benefit. They can't pass, the U.S. can't pass the law. So what you need to do is you need to go down south and you need to change everything going on down south. You need to figure out what, why are these people coming across the border? What's, their, what's the pull? Because I guarantee if you go down... Uh, down south in some of these countries, there's going to be billboards telling you to make it across the border, go here and there. The other thing, too, is the pull, the economic pull. Now, what was it? Um, during a previous administration, I think it was down near New Orleans or one of those states down there, uh, HSI, Homeland Security Investigation, way down there, and they raided a bunch of factories. But they didn't arrest any of the aliens the the people working there, unless they were criminals, and then they arrested them. But they interviewed everybody and they released them. Because what's happening is all of these factories are hiring these people and they're pulling them here to work. And they're the HSI was going after, it's called workforce enforcement. They're going after these big companies. And, but in order to go after the big companies, you have to interview all the people that are here illegally. And you have to build a case. They stopped, they stopped doing that type of enforcement. Because I can bet this way, if you're pulling people across the border to work in these places and they're here illegally, these companies have carte blanche to do whatever the hell they want to them. You can't go file an EEO if you're here illegally. You can't go to OSHA and say, oh shit, they're doing this to me. Um, there's these forms. So there's a big pull by these companies. So what I would do is I would step up the workforce enforcement again, worksite enforcement, and going after these big companies. Uh, but also with a big PR campaign saying, there's no jobs for you up here. Because we're, I mean, if you're here legally, that we're not going to hire you. Well, and, and it's, I mean, it just goes hand in hand that the owners of those big companies are going to go to their congressmen and say, I, I'm losing money here. I can't stay open because mm -hmm. of this work, you know, the, the enforcement actions that's going on against my corporation. And then you get your politicians going in there and it's, it becomes rather than what's good for our country, it's what's good for the people that are, are donating money to my reelection, to my PAC, whatever it is, you know, it just, it's, that's why you just don't have any confidence in most of the politicians anymore. It was, it was actually gratifying to hear you say that Senator Grassley's office was actually uh, great to work with. Oh, they were. Yeah, you don't later on, like, many. Yeah, that later on they went after, they called everybody on a carpet based off the information I gave them. Hmm. Yeah, yeah he's, he's, he's in the thick of it right now with people from the FBI, some of the FBI whistleblowers and other stuff. I mean, the intelligence community. So he's, uh, and you know, think about Grassley, nice guy from Iowa and stuff. He doesn't get too you know, um, over, he doesn't overhang his board too much. He doesn't go bombastic. He doesn't get, you know, he's just a kind of methodical plodding along, you know, Hey, let's get this stuff done. And I, I, I would appreciate that versus no matter what side you're on. I'm so sick and tired of hearing people scream at each other and yell. And pro it's like, guys, let's get the work. Let's you're hearing the, the same 10 or 12 people, yep. uh, echo chambers. There's grifters and echo chambers. That's what I call them. And there's a ton of grifters out there. We both know from these communities, especially podcasting. 
Oh yeah, <laughs> we had a couple hit us up. So, uh, hey, but l- let's talk about the impact though. What was what was it like for you? How did you and your wife handle it once this uh, pressure of the uh, uh, whistleblower, you know, your journey through that, and once you became uh, identified as a whistleblower, how did that impact you guys though? I tell you what, I, and now that I think back about it, thanks for bringing up some great memories. Now I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, uh, I say you volunteered for this podcast. Nobody forced you. I know, I know, I know. But like, just think about the physical issues. I remember back now, I was like blowing a whistle and having like, and to be, I'm, you know what? Fuck it. I'll tell you what it's like. The gastrointestinal issues, my stomach was fucked up all the time. Stress, uh, stress eating, uh, not sleeping. Um, thinking of my career is over with and knowing, well, now I know my career is over with, but it didn't take, I didn't get the realization. I always thought that I would eventually, um, get to a point where I'd be able to affect change. I didn't get that opportunity with in the government. Um, but yeah, just the issues and never knowing what's going to happen. And, you know, uh, you know, you just never know how far it's going to go. Am I going to get in handcuffs? Am I going to do this? Am I going to do that? I didn't do anything illegal, but I'm like, is someone going to come after me? I mean, like, you know, walking out my front door in the morning, I'm like, huh. I'm like, you just, you never know. I mean, the paranoia starts going through the roof. Well, you know, and a lot of our listeners are law enforcement, military, and and they're, I'm sure there's some out there thinking, well, you shouldn't have done that. Well, you did it for the, in my opinion, this is Murph's opinion, you did it for the right reason to protect children. Mm-hmm. You know, that, I mean, and and we have our policies and our procedures and our, our rules and our laws in place for a specific reason. And when those are not followed, who suffers? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, as a parent, as a grandparent, uh, aunt or uncle, whatever you are, think about the children in your life. Would you want them to be in a position where they're being trafficked for sexual issues, for forced labor? going into slavery. That's what this is. Forced labor is nothing more than slavery. And they have no recourse. They probably don't speak the language. They don't speak English yet. Yeah. Who do they complain they have, to? Like you say, who do you call? Exactly. You know, later on in, later on in life, one of my sponsors was um, for the podcast was a company called Deliver Fund, which goes after they provide intelligence support for trafficking to law enforcement and stuff. And before they were my sponsor, I was doing a lot of, I write a lot. So I was writing a lot of articles about trafficking and trafficking is industrialized rape. And a lot of people don't, when they think about kids, they don't think kids are getting raped. There are evil adults out there that are not just abusing children, but they're getting paid to have their, that child abused. So they bring the kid in, they, they have them in a the house. People are coming over paying all day long to, to have sex with a kid, to rape a kid. Isn't that outrageous? It, and Out but, freaking outrageous. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, granted, a lot of the audience is listening is probably within the sphere of military and law enforcement, so they understand that there's shitheads out there, but the general public don't realize about the what real trafficking is. It's industrialized rape and little kids, babies being raped. Like one of my buddies does... Um, child exploitation investigations. And it's like, you hear these stories and you're like, you know, one of the worst class, yeah, one of the worst courses I had to take was through the Customs Academy and looking at the the images of children getting raped and what they're a little baby's. And, and to be graphic, a little baby's vagina looks like after it's been penetrated by an adult. This shit is happening all the time. All the time. 
And it's, I'm, I'm, we know it's not just unaccompanied alien children, but even if her percentage, a small percentage is unaccompanied uh, migrant children, uh, where's the humanity? I don't, uh, some people get so stuck on politics, but a little kid doesn't know that they're being abused. I mean, they're not, they don't know if they're illegal or not. They don't know if they're here, like why they're, why they're being abused. I should say they know they're being abused, but they don't know why. It's like, you got to take politics out of the variable and you need to fix this problem. You need to vet these sponsors. You need to do de people coming across here. And let's say they're not sponsors. Let's say they're coming across a border and they're bringing a kid. Do DNA, do rapid DNA on them, find out if they're familiar relation. If they come in here and say that they're a kid's coming across a border and that's their kid and you tell them right off the bat, hey, you know what? We're going to run DNA and if it comes back that you're not, we're going to prosecute you for, you know, smuggling or whatever. Nine times out of ten, I'd be like, oh shit, that ain't my kid. That's the types of laws that need to be fixed. You need to go back and vet these sponsors. When when these children grow up in that environment, these you know babies, they don't know anything different. So, what do you think when they become adults? What are they going to become? You know, are they going to be? You hope they become hardworking, upstanding citizens of the United States, but the reality is, they're not. They're probably going to go into what they already know. They're going to be victimized over and over again because somebody will yes. recognize them for what they are, which is somebody who's been trafficked and victimized, and then they're going to keep doing it all over again. This goes back to uh, Natasha Hertzig. You know, even when we had an episode, a nice young lady, missionary, uh, you know, went on Christian missions and stuff. Thought she was applying for a job comes walking out of a restaurant, gets kidnapped, forced into trafficking by this piece of shit that's doing life now. But the point about it is when she got done, she her sense of worth, and she says this in the podcast, we're not telling people anything that they don't can't hear, but her sense of worth was so bad, she ended up going into the pornography industry, the adult entertainment, because she had such a low, uh, you know, she thought she wasn't, at that point, she said, I'm not good for anything else. I can't be anything else. I can't be a mom. I can't be a wife. And this is what we're condemning these kids to. And these people, you bring them across, but here's the thing. Everybody wants everybody, you know, we'd like everybody to be safe, but at some point you kind of go, when is it the responsibility of the United States to be the repository for everybody who doesn't like their country? Yeah, yeah, you know, you don't like your country? Well, you go fix it. But at some point it's like, we cannot take everybody. That, that's, that was not the purpose of immigration was to solve social ills in another country. Right. No, I don't know agree. if that was a question or just a rant. I'm sorry, rant. That's, that was just <laughs> nah, well, it's, this. This whole thing is very frustrating. Yeah, you know? it, and it, it It affects everybody in the United States. You might think, oh, well, I'm not personally affected. Well, if you're paying taxes, you are because, you, you know, all Steve, these federal agents have to be paid. You left, huh? you traitorous bastard before. But, but you know, but but it's just even like here. One of the big issues was when they were relocating a lot of Afghan refugees after our withdrawal. Mm -hmm. Guess where, Steve? They brought them up here to the uh, uh, the. Uh, what's that? Um, IBM, or it used to be that place just north and north. Loudoun on Route County. 7? Yeah, off right, north. Right there on Route 7. The, yeah, the old, um, I went to a group supervisor institute there yeah. years ago for three they weeks. They brought in, uh, I can't remember, I think 130, 140 families or whatever else. And Mike Chapman, you know, who both know the sheriff, he, he raised concerns. He says, are these guys vetted? How do we know they're vetted? There were a lot of issues. Mm -hmm. you know, and, so, and it goes back to the vetting thing. It's like the vet, <laughs> vetting is, it's great. If you have the time to vet each individual person with a trained interrogator who knows that culture as well. Hey, you know, one thing I did want to bring up, one thing I did want to bring up before I forget, and this is one thing that someone brought up to me the other day and I never thought about it before, is when I blew the whistle, I, you know, I could, you know, I, yeah, you know, I, 
my career is my career. But how come nobody else did? How come nobody in that email chain blew the whistle? Even if you're a manager, how come nobody, because that email chain came from the SESs on down. And it's, you got to figure like so many people within HHS, Health and Human Services, so many people everywhere knew about this and know about it. Even to this day, they know about it. How come now, even to this day, I think they had a contractor come forward a few weeks ago, that project variety, someone brought up a contractor and he was leaking. He wasn't even doing it the right way. But how come nobody else ever came forward with this? And I could tell them right now, it's like, uh, people have asked me, like, would I go back and do it again? And I'm like, yes, absolutely. Uh, when I retire, I have my name. I have my, my. Your integrity is intact. Your respect yeah, for yourself is my, intact. My yeah. code, you know, when these guys retired and a lot of them have, and some of them you've seen on some news, news stations out there spouting and becoming heroes. Um, but when you look at it, like these same people were managers back then. And they never did anything about it. Let me ask you a question about that real quick. You talk about that email chain. Is that public record? If, In other words, could somebody go to the Office of Special Counsel, get that email, and see who was on there? I don't think so. I think they redacted it all. They did? Pretty sure. Of course they did. They tried to erase all the Yeah, they, they, they love to redact all that crap, except my name. They'll probably and, throw that all out today. And here's the funny part. I don't know. I don't even know how to describe this, but here's how it all started. They identified the issue and they reported it, HHS to, to DHS, and you were on, just happened to be on that email chain, and everybody just ignored it, except one person. What? His name is Jason Piccolo. Well, Jason, why do you think they ignored it? Are, you, are they more worried about their career? Were they more worried about moving up, uh, not causing ra yeah. waves, rocking the boat? What, what was, why do you think that they didn't do the right thing? I don't know. You know, I, I'm not going to put words in her mouth. I mean, I did it for me, but uh, it had to be career. It had well, to be. It's, I mean, it's obvious how it impacted your career. This is the price. If this is the price for coming forward, what you just simply told them is that we will never get whistleblowers to come forward when they have to be subjected to this. And this is the impact. It goes back to the whole statute even says, if there's retaliation, that's actionable. And how much action did they take on the retaliation with you? Yeah. What what about the guy that wrote that original email that contained the spreadsheet on it? Did anything happen to him? Because you know his his bosses probably went back and like, what the hell were you thinking? You know, when we get off of here, uh, I'll tell you about what happened to some of these people when we when we hit pause later. We'll on. have to go into the skiff. So uh, yeah, we'll go into the, the skiff secure computer this. information you know facility. All right. Here's and the I, sad you know, thing. and I wonder, like, I wonder what they because I've been very outspoken about this over the years. <clears throat> I mean, I've been on all the mainstream media about it. I always wonder like what they think of me. I mean, a lot of them, I, th I know guarantee it. think I'm an asshole and a snitch and a bitch and whatever else they called me. I've, I've heard over the years, but it's like, I can live with myself. I'm like, I'm fine. Whatever. I hate the word snitch. Believe me. Yeah. You did that. Here's the thing. So you're calling me a snitch because I want to prevent kids from being raped, from kids from being exploited. I mean, where is your moral compass if that's if that's your um, point of view? Is that you're telling me I'm a snitch and I'm a bitch because I want to protect kids because you failed? Sorry, Murphy. Well, did you Sorry, when, when you got hired in law enforcement as well as the military? Didn't you take an oath? Mm-hmm. Yeah. To defend and protect. How many times have I taken that oath? Jeez. With a bunch yeah. of agencies, so, yeah. Bunch of so, an oath is not to be taken lightly. 
you're you're making a, a promise. You're setting your standards to defend and protect the Constitution and the people of our country. You're doing what you took an oath to do. And so then when you go live up to your oath, all these other people Penalize. have just forgotten what their oath is. You know, listen, they should I be... I would have I would have stayed. You know, there's hardly any social media of me before all this crap, and I would have stayed like like a, you know that one book I wrote out of the shadows. I would have stayed in the shadows. I don't want I didn't want this publicity, but you know I started seeing all the um, the news with these kids in cages and kids in this and kids in that. And I said, look, this is I'll tell you all about the kids in cages and all that stuff. That's why I started talking about it. Um, and then you know what? <laughs> I started writing op eds. And I started noticing the things I wrote in op-eds end up starting to happen with the previous administration. I said, hey, what? You know what? The immigration system's so broke. We have 480 or maybe 500 immigration judges to deal with a million plus backlog cases, plus all the cases we have now. I'm like, what we should do is I wrote an op-ed about doing a port court, having a, having the courts virtual down by the border or, or doing the courts down there and and like a few months later, the administration started doing, they called port courts. So, I mean, things happen because you speak up. And I always tell people, I'm like, if you could speak up and you have some knowledge on it, do it. Don't, you don't have to sit back and don't just scream and don't just come up with solutions. Yeah. Just don't, just don't. Exactly. Just don't complain. Say, look, here's the problem. And here's three approaches we can take to solve it. It's like, I always hate the people who say, well, I don't like it. Well, what are you going to do? Some, what, well, yeah. what's your solution? Yeah. Did, did during this whole process, did any of those people ask you, how can we correct this other than maybe Senator Grassley's office? No, just Grassley. No, I was, I was, a they don't give a shit. no, they don't. No. They, you know, this went from identifying a problem to it being released to the, to our Congress, certain members of our Congress through Senator Grassley. And then it went into self-protection mode. Screw the problem. We've got a guy that's telling us, oh, shit, he's talking bad about us. What are we going to do about this? What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen yeah. to my career? They screw the public. Screw everybody mm -hmm. in the United States. It's all about me now. They circled the wagons yeah. instead of solving the problem. You know, and the sad thing is uh, it's, it's not just DHS. We've no. had other folks on the show that have experienced similar problems that have just been left to hang out there. Pete, we just had Pete Prestelion talking about Fast and Furious, another whistleblower. Yeah. Well, and look at ATF. And, and you know, it, I'm sure every agency is like that. The, you know, they get these people that are power hungry. They get promoted and all of a sudden they think they're more important than anybody else. Promotion is nothing more than a title. You have different responsibilities and the responsibility is not to yourself. All right. So, brother, we have talked about a lot of things. We've covered the canvas, as they say, a lot of interesting stuff. But I think what's interesting, though, too, is what are you doing now? And before we get there, though... Uh, you are Dr. Jason Piccolo. Dr. We, Jason Piccolo. Dr. Jason. Dr. Yeah, this is the Dr. Jason Piccolo show on the five at night, you know, live I'm, drive. Whatever. I'm glad you brought that up because I got a pain back here on my butt cheek on the left <laughs> side. Me, I need no. a doctor to look at it. It's called I'll, a trooper. I'll take a look. I took combat <laughs> lifesaver back in 94. I'm good to go. I can stick you. Yeah, you pull out that combat knife. <laughs> yeah, I'll uh, I'll give you ibuprofen and new socks. You'll be good to go. Dude, that's that's all it takes. What's what's the standard thing? Hey, take take two ibuprofen. Call me in the morning. And yeah. and oh, it's no. not just ibuprofen. It's eight hundred mill. Eight hundred milligrams. People are like, aren't you worried about like your your kidneys or liver or whatever? I'm like, uh, it's it's the army said they're take two. <laughs> 
in the army that also said burn pits were not a problem oh christ yeah i forgot about that one no, i didn't forget about it every time i wake up in the morning so right. doctor yeah so, so first of all i want to kind of book in this too by saying here we start with the guy who barely made it out of school got f's in his first try you know in, in uh college there and so how did you how did you get religion on education and get yourself from a a community college, you know, want to be up through a doctorate. Uh, a weird focus. Like I just, I, I always have to have something going on. I always have to learn. I need like whether or not and now it's like, I'm, I'm different now that I'm like 50 and even in my forties, I'll get into that in a minute, but I always have to learn. That's why like back when I got the masters of forensic science, it was the only one I could do quasi online and in person. Cause and it's the only one that was a like criminal justice. So, I got the master's of forensic science when I was in San Diego. And then later on, when I was going to get a doctorate, I'm like, okay, I can get a PhD in criminal justice. But then I'm pigeonholed into the criminal justice world. And I really like the, the terrorism aspect of strategic security. So then I found a school that I could do online that would fit into my schedule that was accredited. So I started going and I looked for, I found a strategic security one. So I decided, hey, you know what, I'll do that. That's the key thing is finding ones that are accredited by the proper mm -hmm. authorities because yeah. otherwise you're, it's just a document mill with some of these other ones. Oh, I know. There's a ton of them out there. And that, the other thing, too, is I wanted, can I figured, hey, you know what? Homeland Security, blah, blah, blah. I might as well get a doctorate in something that's going to be good. So what was your thesis on? It was on identifying lone wolf jihadists using uh, social media. Was it social media? Yeah. And then wow. my, yeah, it was um, the uh, my... Forensic science one was identifying criminal aliens using uh, something, oh, using federal resources. Oh, it was um, identifying lone wolf jihadists using federal resources and social media or something like that was my uh, graduate, my doctorate. But I like to, and one thing I've learned is writing. I love writing now. Like before I hated writing, you know, but now like you can... You, I've written a ton of op-eds and now I write for a magazine called Skillset, which is fun. You know, like my last article was, well, let me backtrack here. So here's, here's what I do now. Up until like 42, 43, everything was all about that professional resume. That's why I'm a certified fraud examiner, CVP and all every other acronyms you can get mm -hmm. leadership courses, blah, blah, blah. But then like at a certain point, I was like, you know what? I need a professional, I have a professional resume, but what am I doing for myself? So then I started getting into my personal resume and that's where I start writing things. I start like biking, I ruck, ruck marching and, and just writing books. And so what kind and, of biking and, do you do? I uh, just bicycle, <laughs> not bike, no motorcycles for me. Yeah. I just hop on. I, yeah. The W I'm on the WNOD trail a lot. Oh, me too. I actually, um, that's one thing I, so I had a health scare last year, um, with my heart. And so what I did was I started really getting into the WND trail, which is a trail for listeners outside of the area is a trail right in Virginia. It's like 39 miles, 40 44 miles. miles long from Alexandria to Percival. Yeah. So I started doing a lot of events, self-imposed events. So like one day and for father's day, instead of, you know, getting a big breakfast. I said, you know, I'm going to ruck to the Lincoln Memorial. So I hopped in, I, I rucked 14, 13, 14 miles at a Lincoln Memorial with 55 pound ruck on, which is basically a backpack with weights. Uh, I read a book called the 12 hour walk. 
which is walking 12 hours with no social media, no phone, no nothing, and just kind of getting in your head. So I did that. I jumped out on WND and went the other way for 25 miles. <clears throat> so I'm doing a lot of that kind of stuff. And then I decided, hey, you know what? What am I? I started doing like the the Fox News and Tucker and all the other ones for a while back in 018. And I said, you know what I'm going to do now is I'm going to I'm going to start a podcast. I want to do something that's not political, something I could talk to good people and build a good network. So I started the Protectors Podcast in 2019. Um, do you put what do you put out one episode a week? What what's your schedule? I'm kind of sporadic. Like this week, I'll put out two or three. Some weeks it'll be like one. Um, it just depends. I don't like to hold on to podcasts because like if I have them, I'll edit them and I'll get them out there. Cause I think it's kind of like, to me, it's like, I don't really have a set thing. And some people are publicizing something that's coming out the week after I kind of have to get it out there, but it just depends on my schedule. But I've had close to 400 episodes so far. I think I'm on, I've recorded 400. I just published 396. And I just got my trademark registered. So now I have that big old R. So it's the protectors podcast now. So it's pretty cool. And, I've been uh, through that trademark process before. The only people that are good that people say, oh, you can do it yourself. Nah. Nope. I, no, no, I tried that. Yeah. So I do that. And then uh, the writing thing, and then I'm starting a nonprofit now. It's called the Protectors Foundation. What are you focused on? So I went to a shooting course about a month and a half ago because I do competitive shooting now too. I shoot um, International Defense Pistol Association and USPSA, which is US Pistol Association. So I do a lot of shooting. So I went to uh, get some training because that's one thing you know you, you should do when you're in law enforcement is get additional training outside of whatever your agency is giving you. And I found a lot of local, you know, coming from the Fed world, I mean, you, you know, you guys might know the feds throw the money around. You want to go to training? Hey, we can, we, we'll come up with some training. But the locals don't get a lot of training. And it's whether it's from shooting, whether it's stress management, whether it's, and it's not just police, it's the EMTs. What kind of follow-on training are they getting for stress management? And cultural geography, whoever thinks about that, you're going to go work in a small, you're a small town, you're dealing with different cultures influx of migration or whatever, maybe you have some cultural geography training. So I'm starting a protectors foundation. And what I'll do is I'll focus on getting training to small departments, whether it's police, whether it's EMS, whether it's fire. And I'll, I'll just try to get some solid training and vet the training and, and make sure they're getting it out there. Brother, you're speaking our language. We just did our Q&A for Patreon that was released this morning. We recorded it yesterday. And one of the things people talked about, you know, what would you do different? Frederick Nicolosi, actually, is the guy who asked us, what would you go back and do different, you know, at your academy? And you know what Murph and I talked about? I did the same thing. Suicide's the number one killer of cops. I've lost more friends to suicide than I have line of duty. And we talked about that use of force training, training with your weapons, things like that. They don't, there is not nearly enough of it. Why is it that there's so much better fire discipline in the military and certain, you know, elite units than there is? Because they, they, they train, they train to that. You don't have to shoot 40 times. You can shoot two times, right? So it's, but it, but you don't know that until you get that training. And that was our firearms proficiency, you know, use of force, things like that. All the things we talked about yesterday, Murph, I mean, this is spot on with, uh, well, that's um, the other thing too, is like, we know awareness. I've seen a million nonprofits making a billion dollars saying we're spreading awareness. That's great. What I want, what I want is people to get bone for real training. Okay. You want stress management? Okay. We're not going to, we're not going to do, I'm not going to say push ups or something, but you know what I mean? We're going to do this. We're going to get 
a counselor to come in and we're going to talk to you and tell you where to find the right long-term training. We're going to get someone that's going to come in and talk to your department about where to find not just a week training or a whatever. We're going to say, Hey, you know what? Okay. Here's stress management. These are some techniques, but this is where you go to follow up. And this is where you're going to get follow up for tactical medical training. How many people have to, I mean, yeah, some people are giving it to you for free, but what if we can get someone to, I could raise money from corporations to say, Hey, you know what? Pay for these people to get training, shooting, Shooting discipline, shoot what's behind your target. I, you know, you don't think about these stuff when you're doing this. You were talking about medical training. I tell you, that's one of the things I did. I got some med packs and some other stuff. I always mm-hmm. carry one to the range that's on my rig yeah. with me right there. And I've got one, I've got uh, two first aid kits in the back. One's kind of a shooting trauma kit. And the other one's a standard first aid kit. But I, you know, I went through the EMT training early on, did a lot of it. But, you know, but even then I realized, man, I've got to learn, you know, about this new blood clotting stuff. Yeah. I've got to learn about the, the new tourniquets, the way that they work. And uh, there's just so much, I mean, training, somebody told me one time, training is like bathing. Neither one's permanent. What I'd like to do too is I'd like to focus on like for fundraising, I'd really like to focus on corporations. I'd like to focus on people who are getting free police response or getting they're shipping free ammo or I mean they're there's they have big contracts and say, hey, you know what? I my goal is to, to not go to all my listeners or all my followers and say, give me 10 bucks a month. I don't want that. I want to be out there doing the the corporate philanthropy saying, hey, you know what? This is a 501c3. It's a tax write-off for you, but you're also going to do something good for other people. It has impact. Yeah. So that's my goal. I just um, hired an accountant or a CPA to, to do all my paperwork. So I'm hoping to have the nonprofit up by February. I don't know. The minute they run your name through the database, somebody's going to flag as long it. As don't Google me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> At least the, yeah, don't Google me. Well, hey, well, but 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 talk about the two. Let's talk about your podcast. Why did you create your podcast? I wanted to have a voice, but then after that, I was like, okay, it's not about me. So then I was like, I just want to talk to people and I want to learn from different people. I wanted to spotlight people. So it's a protector. So it's, you know, first responders, military, law enforcement, and those that support them. But over the years, it's kind of, it's kind of morphed. Everybody can be a protector. Protect your family, protect the the people in your neighborhood. Everybody's a protector in a way. So now I focus on everybody. As long as you're, you know, you're on the up and up and we steer clear of politics and we just have good conversations. I've had every thriller author you can imagine out there. Um, I've had Medal of Honor holders, recipients. I've had uh, actors. I've had everybody, everyday people. I've had tons of nonprofits on too that if, if we've talked about human trafficking, we've talked all sorts of things. Yeah. Well, and we'll talk about that too, because offline you folks didn't know we share I shared some stuff that I was working on with you. And and that's actually what we're looking at too, is we want to build that up into a not just a national, but an international resource to where, you know, the you know, thanks to Al Gore, the internet has no concept of distance. You know, um, you can connect anybody. So that's the whole point is how do we shrink the world, make a difference, solve cases, find the missing, protect the innocent you know, uh, do all those good things. So, um, we shall, we shall continue on with that, but, uh, but it, it's kind of a, you know, as Murph and I found too, it's, you say you might do it sporadic, but still when you do it though, it requires some, it, it's, it takes some time to, to do a good job, to find the guests, to edit it and to put it out. Well, it's, and trying to get everybody on the right schedule, it's like herding cats sometimes, you know, <laughs> I mean, you were the one of the easier ones we've dealt with, to be honest with you. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting finding, especially when you're talking to co-hosts and 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 herding cats is the truth. But I love podcasting, man. I love talking to people. It's it's a lot of fun, isn't it? Yeah, and I'm I wrote an article for Skillset Magazine. It should be out by the time this. So Skillset's part of Ballistic, which is part of Athlon Outdoors, which is part of like Parade Magazine. And I wrote an article on how to start a podcast. So I got that, and then. <laughs> Look at the uh, maybe in the next few months at the AARP newsletter, which we all part of AARP now. I know the oh, three yeah. of us probably. Are. Um, I'm writing an article for them on how people in us in our older generation can podcast. Cool. Well, let's talk about a couple of things. Though. We don't want to gloss over too many things uh, the way you tried to do earlier. I was in the military and then, oh, no, we got a lot of good stuff. out of that. <laughs> let's talk about the first book you wrote and why you wrote it. So, I mean, uh, first book you wrote, right, was Out of the Shadows. Yeah. Well, the first book was Unwavering, the first edition of it. Oh, oh, well, that's, oh, that's right. It, I'm sorry. I looked at the date wrong because you have now the definitive edition. <laughs> yeah, because edition. this is the definitive edition. So, and, and there's a deal with this. I went to a small publishing house in the beginning, and it didn't quite come out the way I wanted it to. It's kind of political, and there was some stuff that I really didn't want in there. Same thing with the other edition I put out. Now I, I kind of sanitize it so it's not a non-political book, but it's Unwavering, A Border Agent's Journey. It's kind of my story. And if, I mean, you can get the book. We talked about a lot of it today, but there's going to be a lot about the operational aspects in there about working some of these drug deals and working some of the undercover ops and then fugitive operations and the war and a bunch of other different things are in there, but unwavering. And I price it at pretty much a cost. I think it's like a dollar over cost. I just want people to read my story and to get it out there. And really the big thing about it is to get it out there. So if people do want to make that decision, you can you can come out on top. You can tell your story. So if you do say, hey, you know what, one day I don't like what's going on. You want to make a change? You can. Well, I'm, wondering, I'm wondering why I had to pay thirty nine ninety five for your book. Was that a was a special edition for you. That was the definitive <laughs> special edition. That was the special platinum deluxe. Listen, it was for Murph. <laughs> it was for, I, yeah. It was definitely the former one. And plus, I had to, you you had the DEA edition, which is, you know, oh, big, big font. Oh, yeah. No, that's <laughs> the FBI. Lots of money More pictures. More hey, pictures. by the way, though, too, one of the neat things, too, is um, you got uh, Chris uh, Tanto Peranto to write your forward to you. And oh, if yeah. you guys haven't, folks, seen the uh, uh, Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. So I was, you know, we were talking about doing stuff. I actually happened to walk into Fox one day and ran into those three guys when Brett Baer did the special with them. And just, it's humbling to be in, um, you know, to meet guys like that. And then it's humbling when you hear the story and then I get pissed off. I have a hard time watching that movie without getting oh. angry again. Mm -hmm. And then talking to Chris, like I've been on a show a couple of times, two, three times and yeah, it's uh, a good dude. And uh, these are and so many, it's just normal people, you know, we're all just, no, we're all the same. We, I just, you know, just a good dude. Yeah. yeah. Most of us think very much alike. Oh, and uh, yeah. So the reason I got, Chris got in touch with me because he saw a social media post I put out a, a few years ago about being the military advisor for Clown Motel 2. So I was in a movie. Really don't, it's really bad. But it was clowns against military people. And I was like, do you guys have a, uh, and I met the uh, the director through a friend. I'm sorry, what was the premise of this again? It's <laughs> it's a, there's an actual hotel, the clown's actual motel in Nevada called the Clown Motel, 
And it's next to an old graveyard, and it's the creepiest damn thing you can imagine. There was a clown motel one that was dealt with that, and clown motel two was supposed to be a military squad fights clowns. So I was like, "Do you guys have a mil? You're doing a military squad, but do you have a military advisor?" So I went out there, and I was the military advisor on it. And they're like, "Hey, do you want to be in it?" And I'm like, "Sure." It's so bad. I get killed by a clown. I'm like 30 pounds overweight. It probably could have been a clown. But it was like, it's just, it was so funny. So Chris is like, there's a real clown motel. And I'm like, yep. So if anybody, you Google clown motel, you're going to, middle of nowhere. It's past Area 51. So as I'm driving out there from Vegas, I stop at the Area 51. And I'm walking out there, like, just by the front gates. There's no photos and stuff. I'm literally, this is the middle of nowhere. And it's a gate. It's an open gate. I'm there for a minute. And all of a sudden, a, a pickup truck comes out of nowhere. And I'm like, where'd this truck come from? And it's just like kind of shoes me on away. But yeah, it's the clown motel is probably about a half hour, 45 minutes, an hour away from Area 51. So it's uh look at this specialist crazy. Egan. That's me, specialist, specialist Egan. Egan. Clown motel is where all the politicians stay. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. But I'm pumped. Thank you. I'll be here all week. Thank you very That'd much. Be Capitol, wouldn't it? The Capitol building? <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> no, they call that geriatric park. I mean, uh, <clears throat> anyway. We we digress. We're not we're we're not talking politics. We're making political jokes. There's a difference. Uh-huh. Um, hey, well, so you wrote that first book. So what prompted you then to write the second book? Was it uh, something that was left unsaid, or did you want to take a different angle? Yeah, it was just you know the the second book, Out of the Shadows, is really I call it like a primer on like the unaccompanied alien children crisis. And it's kind of like me talking about that, and then talking about the whistleblowing, and I kind of break it down like. Okay, this is what the problem is. This is is how you kind of fix it. And this is what, who I am and why I did what I did. So it's basically just a whistleblower portion of my book, um, more tailor made to the, what the the crisis at the border is. Did you have to submit anything uh, for publication review? No, I didn't. Okay. Because I I was wondering. That wouldn't have been approved. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, it would have come back with one long black mark through the whole book. Yeah, and I didn't, you know, I didn't work in a skiff. I didn't work in any, uh, nothing I talk about is on class. I mean, it's all on class. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, cool. I didn't identify any TTPs or anything. So, um, what's next for you? What's next is my next book, Pivot. It's going to be about transitions and stuff. Transitioning uh, from what? Transitions, yeah. Yeah, I mean, exactly. we're talking First medical was transitions, trans- <laughs> That's the funny transitions. Thing the initial title was going to be like transition, but then I'm like, oh, you know, I need to change it to like pivot. <laughs> it's going to be like navigating life's roadblocks and detours. And it's going to be interviews with all sorts of different people on how they transition from like the military, from careers, from combat, from everywhere. So I've, I've done about seven or eight interviews so far, uh, just a different world people that have been all over the world and just different types of people. So I'm working on that now. I'm going to continue to write and then I'll retire here in the next month or two. Oh, well, you're not going to retire. I mean, you're just going to retire from the government, but you're still going to work, right? Yeah. I teach college on the side too. So I teach Des Moines Community College and I teach St. Joe's University out of Philly. Cool. Just do that all online? Yeah. How'd you get those gigs? Uh, Des Moines Community College teaches a Homeland Security Certificate Program, or at least they did for the TSA employees. So I, I went and started teaching teaching there, Homeland Security type stuff. Then I teach white-collar crime, constitutional law. And then St. Joe's needed someone to develop a graduate course in cybersecurity. So I went and did that. Now I teach that at cybersecurity. 
So how did you get into cybersecurity from where you were? So when I worked for DOD, I was able to go to um, called Introduction Introduction to Networks and Computer Hardware. And I learned how to take computers apart and put them back together and all sorts of other stuff. And then I did some uh, computer forensics type stuff when uh, for DOD. And then later on, I just started getting into cyber. So I know Homeland Security. I know this and that. So I ended up developing the course for them. You know, once, so his, you, once his personal account was attacked, he wanted to find out how the hell that exactly, happened. Exactly. Jeez. Sons of bitches. I will hunt you down. Uh-huh. Take my Winchester or my, my lever action, my Henry repeating rifle. And you got a few of those too. So yeah, we were showing some of those. So you've got a good collection of, uh, Lever actions. Yeah, lever yeah, actions. I love my lever actions. I got four of them right now. I got 30, 30, two 44s, and a 35 Remington. So you're talking about doing, uh, you're doing competition shooting pistol stuff. What's your sidearm of choice? You know, I was shooting optics with a SIG P320 Legion um, X5, and then I went to a Walther PDP full size with optics. But now I'm using a, I took a SIG 320 compact and I put a Wilson combat lower on it. And a gray guns trigger, and I use that iron sights, straight iron sights, and uh, it's fun. It's a, such a fun gun. I had to qualify for you know for our concealed carry. Once you get out, you know if you want to keep it, you, you're going to have to do the HR two eighteen thing. And I had, I didn't bring my weapon with me when I went back, but it's like so they gave me a Smith and Wesson that had the optics on there, and I never shot that before. And it's like, oh yeah, okay, you know it's good, but it's it's a little weird. But it's like I'm so used to the old you know align the sights, you know. Mm-hmm the old thing how do you how do you prefer the uh, optics versus the iron sights you know if i'm gonna shoot a two gun or a three gun i'd like to have optics because some of the targets could be a little bit farther out but anything between like 10 and 15 yards i like to keep the iron sights because i could find my iron sights quicker than i could find the red dot yeah really i think so Hmm. draw to fire i like the red dots though but they're pretty sweet I like all of it. I, uh, what am I talking about? I actually want to, I got a 1911. I want to start shooting a competition with that just to see what it's like. Hey, have you been out to the new range in Loudoun County called XCal? I have. I do. I was just there this weekend with my son that we used to go to Silver Eagle, but I uh-huh. tell you, XCal has got, I've got a membership there now. Yeah. Oh, you do. Yeah. They got a lot of good things going on there and boy, you haven't been out there. Have you Murph? No, I don't think it, oh, I'm not sure yeah. it was there. Next time you come back, you got to go to that because you talk about a selection. They've got a selection of knives now. So they've got their knife uh, uh-huh. uh, display opened up. Plus they have uh, just all the different handguns and uh, rifles and, you know, everything else they've got. You can even rent. They had a guy shooting fully auto while we were there. He, you're mm-hmm. able to rent. You can rent Barrett 50 cals there too. Yeah, Barrett 50 calibers. Holy cow. Yeah. They can, they, is that an indoor range with a 50 cal? Uh-huh. Well, uh, they have got, it's state of the art, man. In fact, the, what's so cool about it is you can sit out in the lobby and watch people in there shooting mm-hmm. and go, whatever you do, don't put me next to this dude because yeah. he's <laughs> going to get somebody killed. Oh, the other thing yeah. is you could rent the private ranges there too. And that's awesome. I like doing that just like if I'm going to go on, because I'm an instructor and I too. So if I'm going to bring anybody out there, it was like badass. But it's funny because um, Black Aces Tactical sent me a lever action shotgun. And what? I brought it out there, and they're like, oh, you better not. It's, yeah, lever-action shotgun. I've never seen one. Who makes it? Okay, hold on. You guys you guys talk for a second. I'll show you this while we're doing it. Well, we, yeah, it was funny, too, because during our quick break here, um, 
Jason had to do a quick speaking engagement. So you probably don't know where we uh, broke and came back at, but he was showing us his, uh, all of his different rifles. A wow. Look at that. That's that is, that is a nice pistol it's a pistol grip lever action shotgun. What's the length on the barrel? 18 inches? What is the tactical advantage, though, to having a lever action versus a uh, pump or a uh, semi-automatic, or is it just style? None. None. It does just it look looks cool. cool. It as looks long cool. as it looks cool. It does it's the cool, cool factor. Yeah. I mean, you know, the pump shotgun, I, just the, the sound of it is intimidating. Oh, I, I think, I don't know if I told, I think I told you this story, Murph, my one quick story before we go here. So when I was a, oh, there we go again. The There's a defense. nice setup. Yeah, Look at that. Now, now you're talking. What we're looking at two, is two, a 300 three. blackout, 300 blackout pistol with a uh, Nomad uh, suppressor and a Surefire light system and Swamp Fox optics. 300 blackout. I built that one. Too. I, I love building ARs now. My what son is really good about building ARs. Uh, that's a, a 300 blackout, but I've built two 9mm ones, uh, 9mm ARs, and I built a 308. So talk mm. about Xcal. I'm out at Xcal last week, and I'll let you guys go here in a minute because we can talk guns for the next 38 hours. I'm out at Xcal, and I'm like, okay, I got to zero this uh, 308 AR-10 I built. And this poor guy next to me was shooting a 22 and just zeroing it in. And I get up there, and I'm like, I forgot how loud this damn thing is. And, the, and, I'm with and my, it throws chunks of gunpowder too you feel it oh, hit your face it's not even that it's the pressure too yeah. it's like everything mm -hmm. um i'm just sitting there i'm like boom boom and my buddy's like behind me he's like holy shit so i look up and everybody's standing back like 10 feet and i'm like oh i'm almost done I, let me i just want to <laughs> tighten it up a little bit i'm sorry 22 is going pew pew i know because yeah. i zeroed my my um i have a, a ar2 and an ar556 and i was like I need to zero that. And I zeroed that the second, like after that. And it's like, ping, ping. Yeah. <laughs> it's like nothing. Oh, man. So now, now, now tell the truth. Really, the reason you got up there is like you just wanted to show off, didn't you? Oh, of course. Tell the truth. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. That 308. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, Murph, you were talking about the sound shotguns make. So when I was a young line of police officer, we get a, a working midnight shift. We get a burglary call at one of our local grocery stores. Front glass is mm -hmm. broken out. So, um, you know, we kind of do the front five, back five. I'm standing outside because, of course, they're sending the senior officers in. We got a guy front and back on the corners. Two guys go in, one with the shotgun. And pretty soon we hear kaboom. And I thought, oh, my God, shots fired. He goes, no, no, everything's 10-4. It's 10-4. What happened was they were walking around the corner. And you know those ice machines, when they drop ice, what do they sound just like? They sound like you're racking a shotgun. He thought somebody racked a shotgun. He turned around and blew away an ice machine. Oh, Christ. Oh, there you go. <laughs> what were you we talking about before about training? Yeah, Protectors Tra Foundation. Everybody <laughs> keep an eye out for that in a couple Dude, months. Dude, this was 1982. I, there, there wasn't. <laughs> you would, hey, when you, you would, get that up and run, let know. us know. We'll, yeah, we'll post will, it on definitely. our podcast sites. Oh, we got, we got, we got, yeah, we do. We have a lot of people, law enforcement and, you know, growing military law enforcement. And I think training is the big thing. I'm telling you. Oh, I know. I had, um, you speak about the eighties. I have, uh, I had Ed Morales on from the FBI shootout. Yeah. We want to get him. In fact, yeah, uh, was it Jack Garcia's yeah. make the introduction for us. Yeah. We've got, uh, yeah, we've, we've had a few of the folks involved in the shootouts too. So it's like. Hey, well, look, dude, we, like I said, we could talk about this all day. Let, let's leave it with this, though. Um, biggest takeaway for you from your career, you know, with where you are now, with everything you've gone through, you know, one of the things we try to do is why should people get into this line of work anymore? I mean, 
you look at what's going on, you look at how people get treated, but yet we still need good people in doing this job. Well, here's a little something you probably didn't bring up, and I don't think I brought it up anywhere else yet. I did bring it up on social media, but about three weeks ago, I went and took the Metropolitan Police Department Reserve Officer Training. I went through the prospect day. So I'm going to be I'm put in to become a reserve cop with DC police, which is crazy. I know I'm 50. So anyway, I'm the oldest guy there and I'm probably the only one it's going not to so much a, the age, but DC, man. I mean, there's a lot of places. If you wanted to just have a little fun and be a reserve cop, I get you a couple of small towns, Percival out here, Middleburg. I keep my foot in the door, you know? So I'm in there and it's the prospect day for everybody. I think I'm the only reserve one there for reserve. And I'm looking around the room and it's a lot of young kids. And there was a couple kids from like Wisconsin that flew in just to become a, a DC cop. The and everybody there was asking me. They found out that I was an agent, and they're asking me all about it and blah blah. blah. But it reminded me. Oh, and before we get to the remind me part, I did the PT test and I jumped over the damn six foot fence. So whoa, there we go. All right, I still go. do it. My <laughs> wife was like, I don't know, are you sure? And I'm like, I did. I passed it. I beat a lot of those kids too. So anyway, listening to the energy they have about getting into law enforcement reminded me of something 20 something years ago, like remembering what it was like and not being disgruntled and don't get disgruntled. The job is not dead. You may not have the support now, but everything's cyclic. So you're going to, it's going to come, it ebbs and flows, ebbs and flows. But if you get into the job for the right reasons, get into it, but don't look at it as a, if you don't want to look at it, as you say, don't look, you don't have to look at it as a career. You could look at it as like a military thing. You know, people join the army. Me, my first term was three years. I ended up doing five active altogether with all the training, and everything else. Look at it as part of your book, part of your, one of the chapters in your book, get in to be a cop for five years, four years, three years, whatever. If it's something you always wanted to do, do it. You don't have to stay. You can go on and do a million other things. I just turned 50. I mean, you know, you could do anything. I've had seven different careers within 30 years, it seems like. But don't look at it as you have to do a career and keep that energy going. You start getting disgruntled, you don't like it, get out, do something else. Yeah. And, and just no, make I, sure you're getting into it for the right reason. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole thing. It's And it's discouraging, too, because you see, you know, when you see how how a lot of look, we go through cycles this is right now. But right now it's been pretty tough on law enforcement. Um, and there's a variety of reasons. A couple things are self-inflicted, but not everything. Everybody thinks it's always the police's fault. It's not. At some point, people got to learn to become good members of society as well. They have to mm -hmm. learn to respect the rule of law. It's right. not, you know, you don't have to like the cop, but you got to follow the law, you know, and that's one thing I learned to do what you don't get to pick and choose the law. So, but I just like hearing what you're saying too. I'd like seeing the fact that there's some people starting to show up. Cause I think it's that initial enthusiasm that they have, get them in there. And then what will happen is some people will move on, but some will stay in what we hope is the good ones stay. We get enough good ones stay that they become the next leaders of tomorrow, make the right mm -hmm. kind of policies and lead the people where they need to go. Uh, and one thing I want to jump on to that with is this. If someone gives you a pat on your back, someone in your career and says, don't fuck up and you'll move up, disregard and do what you're doing. You're probably doing something good because um, it's that don't fuck up. You're going to move up thing that really, these are the type of people that move up to the top. All they, they become risk, risk averse and they just think about their career. 
Steve Jobs said it best, if you read his biography, I think it's Walter Isaacson, he says, look, A players want to work with A players, B players hire C players, then pretty soon you got the bozo explosion. You know? <laughs> That's a good way to put it. My first supervisor on DEA when I got to Miami back in the 80s, you know, he's, he, he brings the new guys in. There's, there's a brand new enforcement group in Miami. And he said, look, I got your back as long as you're right. Well, if I'm right, I don't need you to have my back. I got my own yeah, back. Exactly. I need you when I fuck up. And, you you know, it's a learning experience. But like he was it. one of those guys. It's all about me. Yeah. Uh -huh. We're behind you as long as you're right. And if not, yeah. we're going to be way behind you. Good luck to you. All right, man. Well, hey, look, let's let's bring this to a close. This this has been fun. What I like is that there's some great philosophy, nuggets of philosophy people can take away from this. Uh, get your books, Out of the Shadows, um, a government whistleblower's firsthand account of how the protection of migrant children became a political firestorm. And then we want the definitive edition of Unwavering, a border agent's journey. The def not, not the gold-plated edition, the definitive edition. The gold-plated edition is Merce edition for $29.95. Here's how to order. <laughs> Where else can we find you, Jason? Yeah, what's your website? I head over to jasonpiccolo.us, uh, protectors.us. I'm on, I do everything on social media is usually Dr. Jason Piccolo. So at Dr. Jason Piccolo. And then look for the Protectors Foundation coming up soon. So that'll probably be theprotectors.org or somewhere along those lines. But somewhere along that line. All right, brother. Well, hey, look, thank you for what you did. You know, this is, people can't see this, but this is us saluting you for a job. Well done, soldier, agent, officer, uh, doctor, doctor, doctor. So, hey, great job, man. It was great having you on. And just, you know what, uh, before you leave, I just want to say thank you for your service to our country, both in the military and law enforcement. Thank you for living up to your oath and maintaining the line. You lived up to your standards, the standards we all swear an oath to when others don't. You know, it's it's a it's a damn shame the way things have worked out for you and that you've had to move on and, and that, you know, people just use you as a stepping stone. But my gosh, man, thank you so much. God bless you, Jason. Thanks for coming on Game of Crimes. You guys don't go anywhere. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. Tell you what. If this doesn't raise your blood pressure, get your blood boiling and say, WTF over, Senator, Congressman, Congresswoman, whatever, member of Congress. What the hell were you thinking? And, you know, my biggest question, Steve, is are they still doing it? He was his biggest yeah. concern is he raised it. They were supposed to be vetting. And now there's 250,000 potential sponsors. You know, are they vetting them before they turn? These vulnerable, and when he said vulnerable, he said tender age. We're talking about kids under the age of 10 Both. over to people with criminal felony convictions. Yeah. You think they have good plans for those children? If you do, you're very naive. No, they don't. Um, and again, you know, we said this at the, in the introduction of this. Thank you to Jason for having the guts to stand up and do what was right. Uh, we still think you need professional help because of what you were doing out in the mountains there by yourself all night long when your backup is two to three hours away. Holy cow. Yeah, dude, but you what, know what the hell were you thinking? That That's just a, a fantastic example of what our Border Patrol agents are willing to do to try to protect our border. You know, I mean, you know, they, they don't make that much money. They're one of the lowest paid federal agencies in the United States. And look what they're doing, man. I'm, I'm proud of those guys. And here's a guy who served our country in the military, served it in federal mm -hmm. law enforcement. Here's a kid who went from F's in community college to Dr. Jason yeah. Piccolo. <laughs> Proud of you, you know, brother. Was, 
I saw on, on social media he was out the shot show. And Jason, I'm sorry I missed you out there, brother. I'd love to meet you in person, and and we will meet someday. So yeah, oh, and he's not. He's just uh, right over from me. So we're gonna go out and meet on the trail someday and ride bikes. So yeah. We hope you guys enjoyed that episode. If so, go hit the comments up. Let us know what you think. Head on over to Apple and Spotify. Hit those five stars. We don't know how it works. It's magic. It's Disney. It's David Copperfield, David Blaine, all rolled into one. But we know it helps us, so we would really appreciate your support on this. You want to read Jason's books? Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. Hit the book tab section, and you'll see Jadis, uh, Jason's books. Um, yeah. And the ones that he wrote, and he's got a third one coming out, Murph, you just said, so you're going to have to wait for that. What's the name of it? Yep. The new one's going to be Pivot, Navigating Life's Roadblocks and Detours. But the books he has out now are Unwavering, the, uh, what do they call the Definitive Edition, and Out of the Shadows. These are these are good breeds, people. Yeah. And the link for them are on our page, as well as a link to his page. He's also got the Defenders podcast, which Murph and I are both going to be on. I'm already scheduled for it. And I know Murph will be scheduling soon when he comes out of his stupor, when he gets his knee surgery done and he's... Uh, you know, whacked out on all those pain meds. Um, we need to do some recordings while I'm on the pain meds and see what happens. It's going to be like those videos that kids that come back having to have their teeth folded. I just killed Johnny. Oh. You know? anyway, what do you he, mean? They don't have any great food at the grocery store. Oh, well, babe, we maybe we'll do a live stream of that when Murph is under the influence. So uh, I don't think so. Yeah. So follow us on that thing called social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Uh, but where you got to be is Patreon, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Again, listen to our case of the month. Uh, if you're not on Patreon, go join up. Listen to the case of the month. We talked about the targeted killings out in uh, Tulare County, California, the little town of Goshen, uh, and the implications for it, how we would approach it, some of the investigative steps. I think it's one of our best cases of the month we've looked at in a long time. All of our stuff is great. This one's a notch above. So, But that that's where you got to be. We've got stuff coming out, too. We've got our final episodes of The Real DEA Narcos talking about The Real DEA Narcos Cali Edition. If you want to ask Jason, what the hell were you thinking? You got to ask Dave and Chris, what the hell were you guys thinking? (laughs) Doing some of the stuff they did. But you'll only find out if you're on Patreon.com slash Game of Crime. So, again, we wrap up another fantastic episode. Uh, We Again, we got great stuff. We got some good stuff coming up, too. We've got a British cop uh, that's going to be coming up very soon on a 30-year-old cold case murder that was turned yeah. into a book and a podcast. So that's good stuff. We've got a guy, uh, one of your uh, friends introduced us to, we've got another guy coming out of the, the great state of Oklahoma in the Midwest, the Midwest kid. And we've got some fantastic episodes coming up, Murph. It is, it is. And, and we're lining up more and more. Uh, looks like we're going to get one of the uh, retired FBI agents that was involved in the bank robberies in South Florida back in the 1980s, I believe it was, in which a couple of FBI agents were shot. So it's, it's not a funny laughing matter, but it is historical and, uh, it just keeps going and going. We've got a list of uh, guests that you won't believe. So what we ask is thank you so much for what you're doing. Please share with your friends. And, and we're just trying to grow this network so we can learn more about the heroic actions of our law enforcement professionals out there. And stay tuned. We'll have an announcement about what we're doing coming up soon, but not yet. That's a tease for next time. So thank you guys once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Dr. Jason Piccolo Extended Platinum Edition. Game of Crimes.